The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, now just for the purpose of having this on tape, we got started late because of a power outage and we're just now cranking up in the middle of the message and we're looking at, uh, we've just finished the review and we're looking at the role of the term, the promise and the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 3. Point number one, the promise, here is a technical term referring to the third promise in the Abrahamic covenant and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Genesis 12.3 compared with Galatians 3.14. The second thing we see contextually in this chapter is that the promise is ultimately made to Abraham and his seed. Singular term. To Abraham and his seed who is identified in verse 16 as the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham. So here we see, even though it's the plural word promises, it's talking about those promises encapsulated in the Abrahamic covenant that they were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, is referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. And when we studied that verse, we saw that that's an in indication that every word in the Scripture is inspired by God. That extends down to its grammatical function. It extends to its plurality or singularity, that it's not simply the ideas in Scripture, that are inspired by God, but the very words are chosen by God and inspired by God. That's not to say that, there, that God dictates the Scripture. He does not. He does not override the personalities or individual style, styles of these distinct authors, but he works through them and superintends their writing, overrides it to make sure that they write the exact truth of Scripture and protects it and guarantees it free from error. He does not say, and to seeds, is referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. Then in verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels, by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So there we see that the promise is made to Abraham and his seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number three, if we're going to understand this passage correctly, we must understand what promise means. Point number three, the promised blessing comes by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not seen in this passage as something that comes after salvation. It is a part of the package that we receive at salvation. It's not an experience. It's not something that is added to us as a result of a certain amount of spiritual growth, but it is part of that package that every church-age believer receives at the moment of salvation. We see that in verse 14, which we just read, and verse 22. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, notice it's by faith, it's not by works, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
So what we've learned already is whatever the promise relates to, it's the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, it's get, the promise is made to Jesus Christ and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and it comes to the individual by means of faith in Jesus Christ, so it's at the moment of salvation. So what's the promise? That's the fourth point. The promise in this passage, the promise is the promise of God the Holy Spirit, verse 14. That's where it refers to it, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. But there are seven distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the believers. So to which one is it referring? Well, we see this in verses 27 and 28, that it is the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. So now we must ask the question, what exactly is the baptism of God the Holy Spirit? Now, the reason that this is important is that it's critical for understanding the nature and the dynamics of the spiritual life in the church age. And there's a tremendous amount of confusion that has entered into Christianity over the last 150 years over just over identifying what is the nature of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it's critical that we look at the passages in Scripture to understand this because if you misunderstand this and misinterpret the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit, then you will end up with misapplication of baptism of the Holy Spirit and that will lead to confusion and destruction in the spiritual life if you're wrong. And unfortunately, I don't have power up here to use the overhead yet, so we'll just have to muddle along without our graphics, which would make everything a lot more clear. We must remember that there are seven distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit. This is background to the, to the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and not part of the various points I'm going to give. So just in terms of background, remember that there are seven distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit. First of all, there's efficacious grace. That is, when God the Holy Spirit takes the faith of a spiritually dead unbeliever, when you as an unbeliever said, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, you were spiritually dead at that point. Anything that you do has no value in the sight of God. So God the Holy Spirit takes that faith and made it efficacious for salvation. That's efficacious grace. Secondly is regeneration. God the Holy Spirit creates and and simultaneously imparted to you a new human spirit. You had been born spiritually dead without a human spirit, and you received a human spirit at the point of salvation, and that's called regeneration. Jesus said to, to uh, Nicodemus, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Third, the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is temporary. The believer can lose it, and he can recover it through the use of 1 John 1, 9. Filling of the Holy Spirit is the uh, spiritual power option, uh, the first spiritual power option in the believer's life. Between the filling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, that, those are the two power options for the, living the spiritual life. Without the filling of the Holy Spirit, you're trying to live the spiritual life in the flesh. And that's what Paul's talking about in this whole section. The last three chapters of Galatians is don't live the spiritual life. Don't try to live the spiritual life in the power of the flesh. It won't work. It, it has a spiritual dynamic through walking by means of the Spirit, which is called in Ephesians 5.18, the filling of the Spirit. Also, there is the ministry of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the baptizing of the Holy Spirit, 
Spiritual gifts are bestowed at the moment of salvation by God the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I've, I've reviewed those is one of the great confusions whenever you get into this is that some groups conflate all of these, or three or four of them. They think that filling, indwelling, and baptizing are all the same thing. They don't understand what the ceiling is. They think spiritual gifts come after salvation. Whatever it is, instead of seeing these as seven distinct ministries, they don't think very analytically and very precisely in categorizing them. So it's important to understand that the Bible speaks of these as seven distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit. So let's begin our study of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with a definition. Definition, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, occurs once at the moment of salvation. Every believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and is simultaneously created a new spiritual species capable of utilizing divine power. At the moment of salvation, the believer is placed into permanent union with Jesus Christ, positionally sanctified, which makes him a member of the body of Christ and positionally higher than the angels. This ministry of God the Holy Spirit is unique to the church age and is not ecstatic, emotional, or experiential. Now, we'll come back to that definition. We won't leave it hanging there. There was a lot in it, but it tells us that it takes place once at salvation and has to do with our position in Christ, our identification with his death, burial, and resurrection, and it is related to our creation as a new spiritual species. That is what we also call regeneration. Point number two. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of salvation for every believer. It is not an experience, it's not an emotion, and it's not signified by speaking in tongues or any other phenomena. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, just like justification, is known to the believer only by subsequent study of the Word of God. When you are uh, witness to, when you're an unbeliever and you trust Christ as your Savior, at least 40 different things take place in your life that you don't know about and aren't aware of until you later go to the Scriptures and study what God says. So justification, forgiveness, regeneration, many other doctrines are just as real even though you don't experience them. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of salvation for every single believer. Point number three, there is a problem. What's the problem? The problem is, is there one baptism of the Holy Spirit or two baptisms of the Holy Spirit? One or two. That's the issue. And that's what we have to investigate and study. The reason we have that is because of mistranslations in the Greek or probably just different translators. Whoever translated the King James Version in the Gospels translated the phrase baptism with the Holy Spirit and whoever translated the the, uh, 1 Corinthians translated the same Greek phrase uh, by one spirit. Now the thing is, in the Greek, it's the same identical phrase, in pneumati. The preposition in, en, plus the dative of pneuma, pneumati. Now, in the confusion this morning with the power outage, I forgot to bring a book with me. The book is a dictionary of Pentecostal 
and charismatic theology. And I was going to read out of that because in the article in the dictionary under the category Baptism of the Holy Spirit, the author of that, um, that section specifically states that, not, that Pentecostals believe that there are two baptisms because the, they believe that there's one baptism in the Gospels with the Holy Spirit and another baptism of the Holy Spirit is referred to in 1 Corinthians 12:13 by the Holy Spirit, and that these are distinct baptisms of the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to read that because that would give a little credibility that that, to show that that's exactly what they believe. But the problem is that these are, these two phrases translate the identical Greek phrase. So it's wrong to translate them differently. Now sometimes that might be justified by means of context. But as we're going to see when we look at these passages, they all contain basically the same verbiage, the same terminology, the same context, and therefore the terms should all be translated the same. So I want to give you a little historical background to understand this. We have to go back to what I call the the soil, the fertile ground, out of which Pentecostal and holiness theology came, and that's Wesleyan theology. John Wesley his brother Charles and their friend George Whitfield and a couple of other men were members of what was called the Holy Club. These boys were very concerned with holiness when they were students at Oxford in England back in the 1730s, 1740s. The problem was that none of them were saved at that point. They were very concerned with religious things, but they weren't believers. And it wasn't for some time that they became believers. In, in John's case, he had to be a missionary in Georgia where he had a little scandal and had to leave Georgia with a cloud over his head and take a boat back, to, quick boat back to England. I think he, you know, back then you couldn't even speak with an unmarried woman without creating scandal. And that's just about all he did was was something as innocent as that. But it created quite a scandal, so he had to leave and go home. And sometime later, uh, once he returned to England, uh, incidentally, on the boat trip, he was with some Moravian missionaries who witnessed to him. And so after he returned to England, he finally trusted the Lord. Well, as part of the theology that Wesley developed, which became a critical part of Methodism, there was the doctrine of perfection, the doctrine of Christian perfection. And Wesley believed that at some point in your Christian life, you would reach a point where you would be elevated to a higher life, called which he called entire sanctification or perfect sanctification. At that point, the believer would no longer sin. Now, the only reason anybody can ever get to a point of perfectionism is if they have a very superficial definition of what constitutes sin. I mean, if sin only consists of the nasty nine or the fearsome five or the terrible two, and somehow you manage to never commit adultery or murder or lie or steal, and as long as you don't do those four things, you haven't sinned, then you've made it. But when you start adding in arrogance and worry and envy and all of these other mental attitudes, sins and fear and and, and uh, gossip and maligning and all these other things, and suddenly it becomes very, very difficult to ever achieve uh, even a semblance of perfection for more than a few minutes. So the root of all this is in Wesley's doctrine of entire sanctification, 
called the doctrine of Christian perfection, also full sanctification or entire sanctification. Now, the Methodist Church had rapid growth in the United States uh, from the late 1700s up into the 1830s. That was the period that was called the Second Great Awakening in American history. And there was tremendous revivals. You had a lot of tent revivals. You know, when you turn on TV and somebody's in this big, fancy church that's, that uh, uh, seats about 5,000 people, and the church itself probably cost 3 or $4 million to build, and they call it a camp meeting, you wonder, why do they call it a camp meeting? Because the roots in their theological tradition go all the way back to the Second Great Awakening at the cusp of, of the expansion of the frontier, when people would get out and the only thing they had was to erect big tents and they would bring people in for one or two hundred miles around because the the, the settlements were, were scattered out and your nearest neighbor might be 20 miles away. And if he got any closer than that, then you would move on to the next frontier because you wanted to have a little elbow room. Well, that was the frontier in America. And so they would have they would have camp meetings. They would have revivals. And all the neighbors from all around would come. They would have a week-long series of meetings and a lot of strange things would happen at some of them. And uh, there was a lot of growth during that time. The churches grew, but the frontier was opening up. And by the 1820s and 1830s, you had this uniquely American phenomena of the frontier revival and of these camp meetings. But by the 1830s, because of expansion, everybody was following Horace Greeley's advice to go west, young man, that people were too busy going west laying out their homestead, building their cabins, and eking out a living and just surviving to get involved with church. So in the, 18, in the teens and the 20s, there was tremendous growth in all the denominations, but Methodism just took off. And then in the 1830s, because everybody's going west and the population figures are just dramatic, church growth statistics just took a tumble. The reason I go into that is because they ask the question that everybody asks that's always the wrong question. They look around and they look at the numbers and the numbers are diminishing and they say, what have we done wrong? They're looking at the wrong day. They immediately say, it's a spiritual issue. We're disobeying God. God's no longer blessing us. All these numbers meant that God was blessing us. So now the lack of numbers means God's not blessing us. So what did we do wrong? And they start being subjective and focusing on the wrong issue. And one of the leaders in Methodism at that time was a laywoman in New York City by the name of Phoebe Palmer. She was the daughter of a, of a, uh, of a famous Methodist pastor, and she was married to a very wealthy doctor in Manhattan. And she had a Tuesday uh, Bible study, and she began to teach that the problem was that the Methodist had forsaken Wesley's doctrine of entire sanctification. And so she wanted to take everybody back to this concept that, that not only that there were two works of grace in the Christian life. At this point, you're saved and you receive part of the package. And then you begin to grow as a believer. And that's always done through morality and through uh, cleaning up your life, not drinking, smoking, gambling, beating your wife anymore getting rid of your slaves, that was a big issue. But it's all identified in terms of externals. And then once you've reached a certain level and you, you, you've concentrated so much on the Lord that there will be this second work of grace 
called entire sanctification when God sort of zaps you and you're elevated to a higher plane of spirituality. So now you've got this, this theological perspective entering into American thought that there's two stages. And if, uh, if you look at the, the, um, the old hymn, Rock of Ages, how many times have you sung Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me? Be, uh, the second stanza reads, Be of sin the double cure. That's Wesleyan theology. The double cure. You don't get it once at the cross. You get it twice. It's a double cure. Once at the cross with justification, and then the second cure, which is the higher life, higher grace, second work of grace, the second blessing, whatever it is, that's where that comes from. Be of sin, the double cure. So, that all entered in through uh, the teaching of Phoebe Palmer and, and many others, including Charles Grandison Finney, who went out to and, and became the uh, professor of theology at Oberlin College and Seminary in Ohio, which became a seedbed for uh, uh, abolitionism. Now, if you go to certain churches, certain holiness churches and Pentecostal churches, the people avidly read the, the theology of Charles Finney even today, and Finney's held up. But I've talked to many people who like Finney, but they don't understand Finney. Finney did not believe in total depravity. And in Finney's theology, every single person is born as neutral as Adam was in the garden before the sin. They're not born with a sin nature. Point, point number two is he believed in, he was post-millennial. He said, well, let me, point number two, he believed that salvation was by works. Because basically, if you're not born a sinner, then you can overcome whatever sin that you've committed through your own personal works. So salvation is through, through moral improvement. Third, he didn't believe in a substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. Substitutionary atonement means that Christ died on the cross in my, for, in my place, for my sins. He became my substitute. But in Finney's theology, it was a moral atonement that Christ is an example for us through his moral life so that if we're as moral as he is, or if we follow him in his moral life, then we too will have salvation. And point number three, he was a post-millennial, or four, he's a post-millennialist, and that means that the kingdom will come because we improve or reform society. And that was very common thinking in America at that time, that if we could reform society, we would bring in the messianic kingdom. And you would reform society, especially by getting rid of the big, big sins. Number one at that time was slavery. Number two was drink. Number three was child labor. Uh, our number three had to do with women's suffrage, and women's liberation, and see, see, so many of the, you can see from this that the social issues that have driven American, especially American liberal uh, politics, have its roots in the moral do-goodism of the works righteousness of, uh, of Finney's theology, because it dominated American, Methodist, this Methodist theology dominated American thought even up to the present. So you have, out of Finney's theology, abolitionism, temperance, prohibition, uh, women's liberation movement, child labor laws were the four big issues. And if you could just get clean up society in those four areas, then Jesus would come back. And so everybody's motivated in society to go out and clean up America. 
And that generated a tremendous amount of self-righteousness and a tremendous amount of arrogance uh, in, in people who bought into this theology that we need to go clean everything up so that, that we can have a perfect society and the Lord will come back. So it's a works-oriented system based on human morality. And that became known as the holiness movement. The holiness movement. They held, people in the holiness movement weren't, not, not all Methodists were holiness, but, but all holiness people pretty much were Methodists. There were also some from Church of Christ, um, and a few other smaller denominations. Some Baptists bought into holiness thinking. But it had this two-step theology. You got part of it at the cross, and you got a second work of grace subsequent. You walk the aisle. You've been in churches where people walk the aisle. They're going to dedicate themselves to the Lord. They're going to yield. Whatever it is, that's all part of this two-work system. You get it part at the cross, and then afterwards there has to be this moment of dedication, this moment of yielding, whatever it is. And that became identified in holiness theology. It was called the deeper work, the deeper life, entire sanctification, Christian perfection, the second blessing, the higher Christian life, the full salvation. And it began to be identified by the late 1900s in holiness theology. They began to call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's where this comes from. So you have one work of grace at the cross, and a second work of grace after the cross, and that begins to be called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then by the late 1890s, some within the holiness camp are beginning to look at this, and they're reading Acts, and they're saying, what we've missed out on, we're not getting everything from God at salvation. See, that's the second bad question that people ask. I want more of God. I, in my experience, whenever I see people start saying, what are we doing wrong? Somehow God's left me. I must be doing something wrong, which is the first wrong question this movement asked. And then the second wrong question is, I need more of God. I didn't get... See, the problem isn't that we need more of God, but that God needs more of us. We have to have greater positive volition and not negative volition. The issue is not that God hasn't given us everything because that's clear from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse, verse 3 and 4, that God has given us everything at the moment of salvation pertaining to life and godliness, which is the spiritual life. So in the holiness movement, they began to identify this second work of grace with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then as they read Acts, they looked at Acts 2, and where the, where the apostles spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost, and they said, that's what's missing. That's the sign of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's speaking in tongues. And so people began to... Nobody was speaking in tongues, but they were beginning to say that what, it, what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was signified by was speaking in tongues. So everybody was trying to, to get this gift of tongues. And they, they were correct in interpreting it at that point as being a legitimate language because they thought they would be given the gift of tongues. And then in light of this post-millennial doctrine that the, that the church would bring in the kingdom that what would happen is there would be this, you've heard the phrase, the latter rain, and that goes back to Joel 2, which is really an analogy from the weather cycles in Israel, the early rains, which are the spring rains, the latter rains, which come in the fall, that they said there was an early rain pouring out of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the church, and a latter rain pouring out of the Holy Spirit at the last days, and in the last days when there's this latter rain of the Holy Spirit, then there's going to be this tremendous end-time revival, and then the church will bring in the kingdom. 
That is a dominant idea today, and it was prevalent then. They thought that when they got the gift of tongues, it would spur this great missionary movement, and they were really disappointed. And one of the primary leaders of the group was a guy by the name of William Parham, and Parham taught in, uh, uh, had a little, little small Bible college in Topeka, Kansas. And he, he bought an, or rented an old run-down mansion on the edge of town that some uh, millionaire had gone broke building and back in the Gilded Age. And um, they were having Bible classes, and they were having a watch night service on New Year's Eve. And they were praying, and one of the students named Agnes Osmond suddenly spoke in tongues. And they swore it was Chinese, and that, that they expected her to be able to go off on the mission field and speak Chinese, and later they discovered it wasn't, and you know, had a lot of problems. But Parham introduced that, and that was really the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in America. And then Par- that lasted about two years in Kansas, and then Parham ended up down in Houston, in Houston, Texas, where he had a small Bible college there called Gulf Coast Bible College. And uh, he lasted there for a couple of years. But while he was there, because of the Jim Crow laws, a one-eyed black holiness preacher by the name of William J. Seymour sat out in the hallway and listened to his lectures and learned all about the gift of tongues. And then he began to speak in tongues, and he was called to be the pastor of a black holiness church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And when he went out there and started teaching them about their concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, bedlam broke out, and it attracted worldwide attention, and that's really the roots of the American Pentecostal movement. But it all goes back to Wesleyanism and this distortion of Scripture, emphasis on morality, and this distortion that you don't get it all at the cross, but there's a two-step theology. Now, that's the historical background, and unfortunately, most people never get that in church, so I thought, well, it's time for us to get a little history and background so we know from whence we came and where all this originated. So point number four is the historical background to uh, this on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that it became identified in holiness theology as a second experience after salvation. So point number five, Pentecostal theology states that there are two distinct baptisms. And they do this by, they they came to this based on the English text, not the Greek text. The English text translates the same Greek phrase with the Holy Spirit in the Gospels and by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians. Point number six, non-Pentecostals, non-Pentecostals who reject the idea that there are two baptisms of the Holy Spirit have made a very subtle error in the way they define the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which makes them guilty of also holding to two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. How do they do that? Well, they do that because they misidentify who the subject of the verb is. This is why I keep coming back to the importance of grammar. Look at our phrase here in verse 27. Galatians 3.27 For all of you who were baptized into Christ. And there we have an aorist passive participle. It's passive. Who performs the action of the verb? It's not stated. Hold your place there and turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 
verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Here it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized. And there you have the phrase, the verb baptizo, which is your main verb. It says, We were all baptized, ebaptisthamen, which is an aorist, passive, indicative of baptizo. Now, that's important. I wish I had the overhead to use here. It's an aorist passive. Passive means that the, the, the action is performed, that, that the subject is, is acted upon by someone. In an active voice, the subject performs the action. In a passive voice, the subject receives the action. So who's the subject of the verb in verse 13? It's not stated. There's no clear statement of who performs the action of the verb. You just have an, a, an agent by one spirit. That's a dative clause. So let's go back to, to the very beginning here of this uh, uh, first mention of the whole, baptism with the Holy Spirit. Go to Mark chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Matthew, Mark. Mark 1, verse 4. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the, in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now turn down, look down to verse 8. I baptized you with water. Now in that first use of the phrase baptized, we have an aorist active. Indicative. Active voice means that the subject performs the action. Who performed the action of the verb? John the Baptist did. Then he says, but he will baptize you. And there we have a future active indicative. Active voice. Who's the subject of he will baptize you? The subject is he. He, whoever he is, that performs, that is the one who performs the action of the verb. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's the Greek phrase in numity. That's the same phrase that you have in 1 Corinthians 12:13 by one spirit. So by one spirit doesn't state in 1 Corinthians 12:13 the subject of the verb. It states the one through whom the action is performed, but not the agent, not the one who performs the action. So this is very important to understand. It may seem like a minor point, but the implications are critical for you understanding the dynamics of your spiritual life and everything that God has for us. John said, I baptized you with water, but he, and he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what we see in this prophecy is that John the Baptist is saying that the, Jesus Christ is the one who performs the action of baptism by means of, I'm going to translate it that way because I think that's the most clear translation of in plus the instrumental dative, by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the question is, who performs the action of the verb? Who's the subject of the verb? Very minor point, it seems, but it's a critical grammatical point. Who's the subject of the verb in the prophecy? Jesus Christ is the subject of the verb. He's the one who performs the action. Now, let me read to you a statement. 
This is a typical formulation of the statement uh, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This occurs at the moment, or this occurs at the point of salvation when a person believes in Christ as their personal Savior. That's fine and good. The Spirit identifies each, or, or the, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings each believer into union with Christ. The Spirit brings each believer into union with Christ. Now look at that sentence. Who's the subject of the sentence? What's the verb? What's the verb? The verb is brings into union. That's the meaning of baptism, to identify us with Christ. The essence of baptism is always identification. That's its significance. So bringing into union is the verb. Who performs the action of the verb in that sentence? God the Holy Spirit. Now is that what... Mark 1.8 says. Mark 1.8 says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see the difference? It's who is the subject of the verb. Okay, now, the quote that I read is from the Preston City Bible Church doctrinal statement. Just wanted to show why it's important, because this is typical. It's what I grew up hearing all my life. It's what what's on the, how... how uh, most of my professors at Dallas Seminary formulated it, and it wasn't really pointed out until a current professor at Dallas Seminary, who's a Greek professor, identified this in his master's thesis about 20 years ago. That the subtle difference is that we go to Mark and, in, and the Gospels, and the Gospel passages all indicate that Christ is the one who performs the action, but we're interpreting 1 Corinthians 12:13 and writing it theologically as if the Holy Spirit is the one who's performing the action. And that, by implication, indicates that there are two distinct baptisms. And yet that's not what the Scripture shows. Turn back from Mark to Matthew, chapter... Uh, let's go to Matthew, chapter 3. Matthew 3.11. Matthew 3.11. Parallel passage, same passage in, in, in Matthew. John the Baptist is speaking. John says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now this is where I really wish I could use the overhead because I've got a nice chart to show this parallel. Let's analyze this sentence by John. I, subject of the verb, baptize, present, active, indicative. John is the one who performs the action of the verb. I baptize you. You is the subject of the verb. It's the direct object in the accusative case. And then you have the, the phrase, in hudity. The preposition in, en, plus the dative the instrumental dative of hudor, the Greek word for water. I baptize you by means of water. So what is John doing? John is the performer of the action. Somebody comes to him for baptism. He takes them and he plunges them into the water and he brings them out. Now, water baptism is one of eight distinct baptisms in the Scripture. John's baptism is one of those. Jesus' baptism is a separate one. And believer's baptism in the church age is a separate one again. John's baptism was for repentance to signify identification with the coming of the Messianic kingdom. 
What's going on here symbolically, baptism always indicates identification. You're identifying with something new. So this person was being identified with the kingdom. That's what water signified. Water is purification. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. signifies cleansing and purification. That's its symbolic intent. But it's for identification. So as this individual is taken, the end represents the, the instrument. This person is taken, they're plunged into the water, and they come out identified in a new state. That's indicated in the Greek by a prepositional phrase, eis, E-I-S, eis, plus the accusative, from metanoia, uh, meaning, where are my glasses, meaning repentance. So let's look at this. I, the subject, the performer of the action of the verb, John the Baptist, I baptize you with water, by means of water, for repentance. Now notice the parallel. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you. He is the subject of the verb. The verb is a, here is a future active indicative. So he is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who performs the action of the verb. He will baptize you, what? With the Holy Spirit in pneumatic. Same phrase. So we've got a parallel here. What's the picture? The picture that John is presenting is that just as he takes somebody and plunges them into water and, bring, and to identify them with the new state of repentance, Jesus is going to take the new believer and metaphorically plunge them into the Holy Spirit. This is cleansing and, it, and identification with Christ in order to identify them with himself in terms of retroactive positional truth and positional truth. We're going to see that in other passages. Now, to see how this plays out, this is a, a very important formula. This terminology is, is evident in almost every, almost every use of baptism when you have a, a, the formula. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 2, talking about the, the Exodus generation when they go through the Exodus and they go through the Red Sea. Let's begin in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. There's your, going to be your imagery for baptism identification. And all were baptized. All is the people. Okay, that's the subject of the verb. But the verb here is a passive voice. It's a uh, aorist passive indicative. So they re they are the ones, though they're the, the subject of a passive verb, they receive the action. They were baptized into Moses. That's that ace clause, E-I-S. That's they, what they're identified with. They're identified with Moses, just as those who came to John the Baptist were identified with, with uh, the new kingdom, the coming messianic kingdom, and the believer is identified with Christ. Christ, the Old Testament believer, the, and the Exodus generation is identified with Moses. And then the last clause that's translated, in the cloud and in the sea. What do you think we have in the Greek? It's our in clause. They are identified with Moses by means of the cloud and the sea. 
So what we see is a very technical formula, verbal formula in the Greek for stating baptism. You have a group who is baptized. You have someone who performs the action, the subject of the active form of the, of the verb. You have the instrument that is used to perform the identification indicated by an end clause. And then you have the new state of identification indicated by an ace clause. Now let's turn over a couple of pages and go back to 1 Corinthians 12.13. 1 Corinthians 12.13, For by one spirit, by one spirit is our phrase in pneumity in the Greek. That indicates the instrument used in baptism, to perform the baptism. We were all baptized. There you have an aorist passive indicative. The subject, the one who performs the action isn't mentioned. It's a passive verb, but the one who performs the action is not mentioned in this verse at all. Because the emphasis isn't on Christ doing it. Christ isn't the, the emphasis that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 12 is the unity of the body because they're all divided and making a big issue out of their different spiritual gifts. So rather than emphasizing the person who performs the action, he's, he's indicating the unity of the action. For by means of one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now notice the similarity. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all one. We all partake of the same thing. Now let's go to our passage in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, for all of you, that is, all believers, all of you Galatians, who were baptized into Christ. Now, we haven't had that. We didn't have this phrase in 1 Corinthians. Into Christ is our ace clause. That's the new state into which we're identified. We're identified with Christ. And we've clothed ourselves with Christ. All of you who were baptized. So, how do we understand baptism? Just as John the Baptist would use water symbolically. He used it symbolically to indicate the identification of the, this person with the new state. So Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit. What does Titus 3.5 says? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See how all of these doctrines interrelate. You can't separate them. You can't study one without showing how it relates to others. So here we see how regeneration is related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're not the same thing, but they're related. Jesus Christ takes the believer, uses the Holy Spirit in cleansing and in regeneration, and that process is how he identifies the believer with his own death, burial, and resurrection. And a result of that is that we are imputed the righteousness of Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That's the imagery there, putting on the clothes, the robe of righteousness, being imputed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. The result, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In other words, you Galatians have been misled by the Judaizers who are still making an issue out of Judaism. But because of what's happened at the cross and at Pentecost, because of this unique ministry of God the Holy Spirit, 
there's no longer racial ethnic distinctions according to the Mosaic law in the present church age because every single believer, regardless of sex, regardless of their economic status, slave or free, regardless of their uh, racial or ethnic background, whether Jew or, or Gentile, they, every single believer goes through this at the moment of salvation and they are all Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, that is, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then, two conclusions, you are Abraham's offspring, and because you're Abraham's offspring, you are heirs according to the promise. Now, what promise is this? You can't just go in and grab any promise you want out of the Scripture. What prom- we started off, That's why we started off looking at this word, promise, at the beginning of the lesson. What is the promise? Back at verse 14. Heirs according to the promise. Verse 14 says, so that we might receive what? The promise of the Spirit through faith. So according to verse 29, it's obvious that if you belong to Christ, if you're a believer, you're an heir according to the promise. That is, you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. That's one of the 40 things that God did for you at the moment of salvation. It's not something that happens after salvation. It's not an experience. It's not signified by speaking in tongues. And if you go through and you look at all of these times in, the, in Acts, when in Acts 1.5, in Acts... Acts 2 at, the, at Pentecost, Acts 11.16, Acts 19.46, all of those passages, you will see that in some passages, there's a couple of passages, they're speaking in tongues, but in two or three passages, there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but no speaking in tongues. There's no set pattern in Acts. Acts is a historical book, it's a transitional book, and you never, ever go to a historical or transitional book as the basis for doctrine because it's in flux, especially a transitional book like Acts. So uh, you can't go to Acts to find the solution, which is what the Pentecostals say, is that's where you find the answer. You go to the epistles and the clear definition of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the epistles. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit does away with all ethnic distinctions and is the basis for the unique spiritual life of the church age. That is one of the hallmarks of this dispensation. And one of the things that makes the spiritual life in this dispensation unique. We have light. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the fact that we were able to gather together this morning and in spite of the difficulties with the power outages, we were able to study your word and to receive spiritual nourishment this morning. Father, we thank you for the unique role of the Holy Spirit in our lives in this age and that that is the unique basis for our spiritual life, that we might not be confused or distracted by so many false teachings about the Holy Spirit, but we might understand that this this spiritual life that you've given us is empowered through the filling of the Holy Spirit and that our spiritual life, in fact, is based upon the baptism of the Holy Spirit which we received at salvation, that this identified us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and in part was responsible for our being made new creatures in Christ. So, Father, help us now as we understand these doctrines, these important doctrines, to see how they relate to our unique position in Christ and the unique privileges that we have 
in the royal priesthood of the church age. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.